Audi. For her work on The Illusionist and Answer Me This podcasts and more, Helen Zaltzman is one of Britain's best-known podcasters, whose recent much-earned trip around the world ended in disaster, or at least in intensive care. Before that hospital incident, however, she loved Tasmania, felt like a welcome outsider in Japan, has done over 10 road trips around the States, and above all, has travelled with plenty of guilt and discomfort. Please welcome the wonderful Helen Zaltzman. It's the Big Travel Podcast, and we explore, I say we, it's just me, but it makes me feel like there's a team of us. I am a team of us. I explore life stories through travel. For people who don't know you, everyone in the podcasting world, you're the the queen of podcasting. It's a republic. Oh yes, the republic. You're the leader of the republic. Dictator. Yes, the dictator. Benign dictator. Um, Tell us what you do. Well, uh, I make the podcast Answer Me This and The Illusionist. I am one of those living room podcasters that become slightly mythical creatures but we were common at one time yeah so I'm self-taught and it's now my full-time gig that's very nice it's very nice to get a full-time job out of it and unusually for a travel story I'm going to start by giving you my perspective on your travels please I honestly it would really clarify things (laughs) so I'm part of a Facebook group as podcasters support group that you run in your benign dictator role (laughs) and you know I got the impression you were away and I said oh that's nice Helen's away maybe I'll get her on the podcast you seem to be going to some great countries you're in Japan you never sort of outwardly said you know I'm doing a round the world trip but I got the impression you're doing a round the world trip and having a great time and you know juggling work and everything as you're going and the next minute you're in intensive care (laughs) in Tasmania having almost died yeah well I mean I didn't die so how almost can I don't want to milk it too much what the the hell happened yeah well um, I was in Tasmania which is absolutely charming by the way let's not hold this against Tasmania at all and I had been working really hard for a few weeks and the terrible thing this feels like a moral judgment on myself is that whenever I've been working really hard, I then tend to get ill. So my I had tonsillitis. And then I woke up one night an hour after I went to bed and my neck and shoulder had all swelled up. And um, I looked like um, Nanny from Count Ducula. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I thought about it, but I do. Yes, you know, no same. But then when you look in the mirror and you see her staring back, you're like, oh, that's unusual. I remember you. Yeah, and um, I... Uh, had a gig in Perth on the far side of Australia two days after that and I was like well need to go to the GP and get some medicine because I don't want my eardrums to burst on the plane or anything and he was like you need to go to the emergency room and because it's Tasmania it's quite an empty place I didn't know as well that Brits get free healthcare in Australia which was a real boon so everything happened really quickly like I went to emergency and within an hour I was in a CAT scanner and I, I was raised in the kind of family where you don't take your own illnesses seriously you take paracetamol and just push through and then it will go so this felt weirdly validating it's like okay you are actually ill (laughs) rather than just being pathetic so what had happened was the tonsillitis had created this sort of infection in my neck called a retropharyngeal abscess so there's a lot of wasted space around in your throat and mine had filled with pus lovely and it didn't go away with antibiotics so then they had to drain it surgically because they put a breathing tube in because it can close up your throat that's why it's bad Um, that's not good it isn't good I mean you need to 
breathe. breathe yeah. yeah. <laughs> people people love to breathe. It's very good for you, I hear. Yeah. So they put a breathing tube in and because the breathing equipment was intensive care, so was I for a few days. And but surely it could have also like an appendix, which I had last week. Let's, let's Congratulations. All our, yeah, all our operations out the way. Surely it could have also burst and killed you that yeah, way as yeah. well. Yeah. So um, they like to act on it quite quickly because it can either stop you breathing or poison your blood. And either of those are things that we humans uh, struggle to cope with. <laughs> Again, it was kind of lucky that I was away. And because I think if I'd been here, I was like, it'll go away. It's such a hassle to go to my GP and try and get an appointment. Ah, dead. So it was sort of fortunate that it happened. I didn't know anyone in Hobart, Tasmania. And in a way, I think that was sort of fortunate as well. So I didn't have to put on a jolly face or anything. I could just sit in the hospital for three and a half weeks. But you did do a podcast from your sick bed. Yeah, well, I had to because... Uh, I you just had, had to. Obviously. No, I had an ad that I had to fulfil like on that was date. You, yeah. yeah, so that's the only <laughs> so way. We, we don't care if you're dying. You're really well, I mean, they. I didn't want to run it past them. Yeah. But it's like I don't get paid if I don't do the show. But also, it was I only get things done because I have deadlines, and usually the deadlines are because a sponsor has paid for a show to come out on that date, pretty much. So, how was the uh, the Tasmanian hospital experience? Well, I don't have much to compare it to because I. I've had day surgery in Britain once, never been in hospital otherwise. It seemed fine. That um, you're alive, you're here. I'm alive. Yeah. I was in a ward, I was like the youngest person by about 40 years on the ward because it was mostly an orthopaedic ward <laughs> and um, they didn't have any other ear, nose and throat patients so they put me in there. And because it's quite an unusual ailment, the retropharyngeal abscess in adults, it's usually the under eights who get them. They were quite interested in me, the doctors, so I saw a lot of them, got wonderful care. And then um, I had a series of roommates, Marge, yeah. first Marge, she was 82. <laughs> was it like something out of Kath and Kim? Yeah, it was, it was. There was Marge one, and then there was Colin, who was 85, skating injury. And all the nice. nurses were like, you're 85, but you're so ripped. And he was like, well, that's because I chop a lot of wood. And, uh, <laughs> and then, So many things. Yeah. So well. And then there was it's Marge always... two who's 89 and her son was called Colin and I was like is that all the names that they got here another very old along with Count Ducula it reminds me a little bit of the Sullivans which is one of the only oh problem programs God. I used to have to watch on Gibraltar television growing up in Spain there was there were very few things but the Sullivans was one of those things wow and I don't think it was Tasmania I haven't been I've been to Australia several times but I haven't been to Tasmania it gets a bit unfairly judged doesn't it because you kind yeah. of because they they there was the whole gay thing and there was the whole racism thing you know, it does get, it gets a bad press, I think. What is it like? It's it's interesting just generally in Australia that um, I think, like Brits, Australians are quite self-deprecating. And when I got ill, my friends were like, oh, that's because we're dirty people. I was like, I've just been in like <laughs> developing countries whilst traveling and Australia is like squeaky clean compared to pretty much anywhere I've been. I think that on the one hand, you do have a lot of you do have a lot of uh, racist stuff and a lot of it is what Britain exported to there, you know, a lot of uh, uh, white privilege is uh, one of Britain's most successful exports. But on the other, there seemed to be an interesting reflection around the place. So whenever I saw a performance or even at a conference or even on a whale watching trip, at the beginning, they would do a dedication to the proprietors of that land and whichever tribe the land belonged to. And initially I thought, is this just lip service to make the white people feel better for the wrongs that were done? And then like when you hear it so many times, like, oh, actually, it feels like quite a meaningful and humble reflection upon those things. There's still a hell of a lot of reparation to do and then like just so much of it is irreparable. So that was interesting. I also saw a monument in Melbourne that was like monument to John Englishman who uh, occupied this previously unoccupied land. And then there's a plaque screwed onto it saying it wasn't unoccupied. 
uh, I was like, wow, okay. This yes. Is, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We've. Uh, oh, that's very interesting. I don't I remember thought, seeing that when I was in Melbourne. Maybe they hadn't put the correction on, so you were just like a uh, boring monument. Uh, yeah, they'd they'd uh, they'd come to their senses by that point. My dad's from Fiji, and one of the nicest things I've heard about colonialism. <laughs> um, is that it was kind of a little bit reverse here, but there was, a, I think their family is Southampton, but there was this guy called the Reverend Baker who went to Fiji about 300 years ago and got eaten by cannibals. Huh. And, you know, that'll learn him, you know, for yep. doing his... Uh, should get him on, that'd be such an interesting that. story. Well, his descendants, oh my God, I should get his descendants on. But his descendants went to Fiji. They were paid by the, they invited by the Fijian government about 10 years ago from Southampton or Bournemouth or something like that to go to Fiji so they could apologise. I'm really sorry, we ate your great granddad. And, uh, you know, wow. maybe the Australians, that's kind of the other way around, isn't it? But, you know, there could be some sort of reverse thing like that there's a i think a lot of emotional conflicts i find australia interesting anyway because it's it's countries that are quite removed from other places like i love the bottom of south america as well it felt so isolated iceland that's intriguing to me newfoundland australia has that but tasmania is an island off mainland australia and then we went to bruni island which is an island off tasmania absolutely beautiful like white sand beaches oyster farms cheese making but like you've really got to make your own fun down there, which is probably why they make so much amazing cheese and booze and stuff. And then Hobart looked to me a bit like Bath or somewhere, lots of those kind of golden stone buildings, really small city, then beautiful like green mountains in the background and gorgeous clear water everywhere. You can see starfish in the harbour. And about five or so years ago, a local guy made a lot of money online gambling and built this modern art gallery into a cliff. And he's a bit of a Bruce Wayne type, so his parking space is like God, and next to it is Mrs. God's parking space. So it's like a little bit silly, but this art gallery is really cool. You go in a lift down to the bottom and you work your way out through the cliff and there's lots of sound design and, and light. So it feels like you're in an art experience right, as well as looking at pieces. And he runs an annual festival right when we were there. It's this midwinter festival called Dark Mofo. And again, a bit silly because there are all these like neon red crosses through the town. And everyone's like, oh, so controversial. You're like, it's controversial in a bit of a sixth form way when you think of what's the what's the most subversive thing. But it's, it means for a month in midwinter, there are all these performances and there are people coming in. So the locals were saying nothing really happened here until a few years ago. And now there's an art scene and there's cool stuff happening. But it's quite laid back as well. Did you manage to switch off i think one of the things i love about australia it's so amazing and beautiful and and relaxing and big in the space Mm. it gives you a chance to switch off but it also feels very far from home and you must have felt very far from home when you're in hospital almost dying yeah i think when you're in the middle of being in hospital almost dying experiences or when i was in the middle of them i was like well i'm alive at this moment which means it can't be that bad whereas my husband was like she's got a tube in her face and you know he could see the full extent of it so I was being a bit blasé about it and I think I still am I think I can't really absorb the experience but it was weirdly peaceful in a way even though hospital don't know if you found this well very noisy basically all the time it's like beeps through the night people shouting or complaining or whatever it was just like a lot of ambient noise but I think it was just the lack of choice was almost a relief <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying I would choose no I totally get that great. there's been times in my life when I've been really stressful and tired and thought if I could I know this sounds ridiculous and it'll probably get me some stick for people who have real proper problems yeah. but just thinking if I could just bump my leg and like <laughs> be somewhere in a 
in like the priory or something for a few days <laughs> where people will bring you food <laughs> and drink and just look after you and stroke your brow and oh, it'll be all right. <laughs> you need to train your children up to do those things for you. What, to like kick me in the shin? No, to stroke oh, your right, brow to stroke and to bring, you, yeah, that's true, bring yeah. you a fruit plate. They're far more likely to, uh, to, to kick me in the chin. Oh, that's not helpful because then you might have to get stitches. And, Did well, I say chin or shin? Whichever. Yeah, whatever's available. Good, yeah. yeah, One child <laughs> on the shin, one on the chin. Exactly, they'll uh, gang up on me. Yeah. You have a spectacular scar to show for it. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Story. Yeah, I think so. It's on my neck. It's at a diagonal. It's quite dramatic looking. I went for a blood test the other day and the nurse was like, were you stabbed? <laughs> um, so the story is a bit boring, to be honest, but it's kind of handy as well because like, it was, it's now three months since it happened, but I'm very tired all the time. They said it would take probably six months to recover. I don't really want to milk it, even though I've been talking about myself since we got here. That's what you yeah. have to do. Don't worry okay, about it. Yeah. fine. Um, it's, you're on the on the other side of things here. You are here to talk about yourself. Right. And not, not on the other side as in died and no, now no. afterlife. Well, you, you might be. This is the afterlife. It's, it's pretty fucked uh, up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of useful for people who are like, oh, yeah. Yes, you will. Oh, what happened? Oh, got to be uh, careful and nice to you. But I was thinking, if I'd had something more personal, like uh, a prolapse of some <laughs> kind, say, then the scar probably would not be visible when I was fully dressed. And also, you probably don't want to talk about your womb or your bowels to most people. Like, neck is fine. You're speaking when... to the person who made a whole womb, a, a whole documentary about the womb for the Discovery Channel and was on every single Yeah, but you're, you're a hero, you see. People <laughs> do need to talk about wombs people and, like, not, difficult do, medical do. conditions and stuff. But, you know, it's a lot easier this kind of thing even though the story is boring i should make up a better story like yeah a pirate fight yeah i lost well should we go well let's go from the uh, the hospital and yeah. the survivor which is a great story <laughs> to the travel so before yes. you ended up in tasmania and maybe yes. after tell me about the whole travel experience yeah. well about a year ago we my husband quit his job um so we had to find a place to live and we were like i don't know really most of my work was coming from the usa we didn't know whether we wanted to move there given the Trump times. It's hard to opt in to that because it seems like approval. I know a lot of people um, are saying that. Although that is also not the story of all of America. It's not like that. Yes. <laughs> it's travelled extensively there too. It's not like, uh, it's, not, it's not one Trump thing. some Trump fans are decent people. Sure, yeah. I sure. mean, well, yeah, decent, very wrong people. And I think he wanted a change as well. I think probably he wanted to change maybe a couple more years away. But it was like somewhat a practical decision. It's like, well, we need to find somewhere to live. We don't really want to commit to anywhere at the moment. So let's just not. And uh, we don't have any children. All of our stuff was in storage anyway, because we were kicked out of our flat a while before. So we didn't well, have to make... Was that just because it, the contract or you actually oh, did something no, to our, be kicked out? Well, no, our landlord, who owned a flat 10 years before, had got a job in Dallas. So we moved in 10 years later, lost the job in Dallas, was like, I'm moving back, you have to leave. And so we did leave. And then we were trying to buy somewhere for like seven months, Japanese knotweed bullshit. And then the owner was like, well, I want to emigrate to Australia in nine months. And also I want to give you to give me more money. So she wanted more money for us continuing not to live there for even longer, it having been seven months. We were yeah, like, ah, fuck off. Yeah. Can we swear on this? I mean, I know yes, to do yeah, swearing. Yeah, 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 I do swearing. I've just yeah. won a couple of times. And <laughs> That's it, you're barred. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we decided that at the moment my income could support my husband and he'd never had a gap year so when better than when you're 40 to go yeah, on a gap absolutely. year absolutely i know a lot of people doing it i hadn't been to most of the world i guess i still haven't i've been to like 10 more countries than i'd been to before so what were the countries where did we start so we, we had quite a lot of business in the us and then we went to 
Peru, but only for, it was kind of to get to Chile. And then we went to Argentina and then back to Chile. Then back to the US to look after some friends' dogs over Christmas and New Year. And then to Hawaii, which was uh, magical, amazing. Uh, have you been? I haven't been to Hawaii. No. It's uh, very far. It's far, yeah. I've, I've always skip it over because I go a lot to the South Pacific and I always sort of yeah. fly over it. I'd love to stop there, but it's bloody yeah. expensive as well. Yeah, it is bloody expensive. But um, I'd never been to a, a an island nation before, except for like Iceland or Jersey, which are rather different. Mm. And uh, it was just sensational. And I don't even like warm places, but it made me want to visit a lot more of the Pacific Island nations. Then we went to Japan and then to Hong Kong, Vietnam. Cambodia. Been to all of those places and I love them. You've been to must be how many countries you've been to? Oh, I haven't counted actually. Uh, I mean, it's not as much. I always say I'm a travel fan rather than a you know like the world's greatest traveller. Although I have been to what what are the thirty plus? You know, that's, I mean that's good. What are the markers of the world's greatest traveller? How are we counting it? Well, I guess it's someone like Simon Calder, and I'm his unofficial mm. understudy, his sort of stunt double. <laughs> but I've got what kids like? now, so I'm not going to like the faraway places. But anyway, no, this is not yeah. about your oh, interview. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not about sorry, me. Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan. Back to Japan, but for longer. Back to Hawaii, but just really for a little bit to get back to the States. And then from the States to Australia. And then we were supposed to go to New Zealand and Canada, but I had the whole hospital thing instead. Did and you fly straight back after the hospital thing? We went to Singapore and we were going to spend a few days there um, to break the journey. Uh, so like we had a, a slower time in Australia. We spent seven weeks in Tasmania in the end, saw quite a lot of it. I was really glad to see more of it because it is lovely, really lovely and very restful and um, pretty laid back. Then we got the ferry back to Melbourne and that ferry is super fun as well. It's like a little 12 hour cruise. And uh, then we drove up the coast to Sydney quite gradually, which was also awesome. Oh, saw so koalas and stuff, lot of dead kangaroos and wallabies. Very exotic roadkill in Australia. And then we went back to Singapore and then I was having a lot of throat problems. So I was getting these like stabby pains and I was like, I don't want to end up in a hospital in Singapore. So we flew back a bit early. So what was the best thing about this whole experience? Oh, that's so hard. Hmm. I think feeling it's a real privilege to do that. And we we privileged in so many ways. I mean, having the financial means to do it, our relationship is legal in all those countries. Like I was thinking, you know, my gay friends wouldn't be able to do this or wouldn't be able to like Even just Even in Tasmania until 1997, I think it was. Yeah, something extreme. And, you know, English speaking privilege like doesn't doesn't work everywhere. But, you know, it was easier for us than it would be for a lot of people and I was really aware of that. And, and that wasn't the best thing. That's sort of like a painful thing to That's absorb. A, a really and nice way to look at it. And I, I don't often hear people saying things like that. So you, you travelled with a conscience, but also almost a guilty conscience. Yeah, especially when you also see things that Britain has done in other parts of the world. And I'm from southeast England as well, which is was very sort of oppressive to other parts of Britain let alone the world and then also as a, a language person I think English is a very fascinating language partly because it's such a mishmash of global elements but also it has um, has exerted quite a lot of influence over local cultures and languages are lost and I was interviewing someone in Australia where there are 250 indigenous languages some of them only have one speaker left and she was talking about things that the British did to break up Aboriginal communities and this is like during her childhood four decades ago they were doing it and I was like oh god like it's 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 hard not to yeah. carry the weight of the world with you like that but it's it's yeah not, I'm here to tell you as someone who's mixed race and someone who was half from a colonial place that was abused I wasn't personally my, my relations were in Fiji yeah. and India I'm it's not your fault no it's not my fault. I mean I'm like mm, hand wringy <laughs> 
Um, and then we just met some really lovely people everywhere, very kind people everywhere. And that's nice to be reminded of. And also there's a lot of fuckery of different kinds around the world. And you're like, yeah, I mean, Brexit's horrible. Trump is horrible. <laughs> the Cambodian governance is really horrible. It's just good to learn yes. about yeah. you think a lot you, of things. You, you often think you've got it bad and then you do go somewhere where people do really have it bad and you yeah. just think, well, the miracle of having hot and cold water in your yeah. house, you know, and, yeah. and a house and a bed and yeah. all those things are, are, are yeah. wonderful. We're, we're rich. You don't, we don't realise yeah. that we are rich and things sometimes yeah. remind you of that. Yeah, exactly. It's like we are so lucky and we don't realise it relative to the rest of the world, but we are so lucky. But talking of oppressive regimes, um, but your dad is South African. Yes. I mean, so his father Father, his parents Lithuanian and his uh, I think his mother was born in South Africa her parents had immigrated because there were a couple of major waves of Eastern European Jews to South Africa I think around 1890s and then when my grandfather went I didn't know him because he died when I was a baby but the story is that he was in the Lithuanian army and the 20s and 30s like not a good time for Eastern European Jews so he went AWOL from the army I think he walked to Hamburg ended up on a series of boats and finally in South Africa and then ran, ran like a village shop and met my grandmother. One reason why there was such a big wave of um, Jewish immigration there is because it was a society where Jews weren't, weren't the worst off. So that's pretty grim. But then on my grandmother's side, I think second generation immigrants, are they're more assimilated. My grandfather was like, can't stick out. You just like, you know, head down, you support the regime. And it wasn't like he was enacting it. He just wasn't fighting it yeah which is exactly what happened to yeah. the jews and how it went so right. badly wrong i've just read a book called travelers in the third reich which uh. is a brilliant story about how people just accepted it and people who were british people american people people traveling all over the world and spending a lot of time in germany just before the war between the wars and how they yeah. sort of accepted it they just didn't fight it and then it just yeah. gradually got worse and worse yeah there was such a trend wasn't there of like young men particularly in like the 20s and 30s like going and being in in germany it was like a very freeing place for them yeah it was almost a grand yeah. tour but people yeah went just yeah to like germany. young british aristocrats and stuff but then on my grandmother's side her siblings were like very big in the anc her brother was nelson mandela's accountant which is one of the only ways that they could associate because they couldn't be friends because my great uncle was white Nelson Mandela was black and they had to flee South Africa and they were exiled they were in Britain for 30 years while they were exiled and they went back after the end of apartheid so like my dad was kind of in the middle of this I think he was kind of closer to his uncle and aunt the ANC ones than his parents but he's always seemed very politically neutral like he's a spectator he's very well informed he reads a lot of newspapers every day listens to news all day but it's like it's a soap opera that doesn't affect him and i wonder whether it's just growing up between these two poles having to switch yourself up yeah and then he was like really desperate to leave south africa as a young man he was born in 1941 so it's perfect age voice is going Perfect oh, age for the swinging 60s, but they didn't really happen in South Africa. So he well, came over here and swung, did he? <laughs> I think he... he I'm not got, accusing him of being a swinger. You well, know, I mean, I don't know 60s, what he got up yeah. to. Your parents don't talk to you about that I'll kind of I'll get him stuff. on next time. Yeah, he's an interesting fellow. He's a sculptor. He is a sculptor. So he came over here and was introduced to my mum by an ex-girlfriend of his who was my mum's flatmate. And I think she was just like, I need to get rid of him. So they got married. And so before that, I think he went to Canada first to see if he would like Canada. Ended up in Britain because someone offered him a job. Then kind of stayed put for like 50 years nearly. So was there any opportunity for, I feel really bad, like making you talk. Like no, it's okay. To talk now. Oh, um, so, so was there opportunity for travel when you were a kid? No, not a lot. We didn't really have holidays or anything. There wasn't, when your father's a sculptor, there was not a lot of spare money. 
So um, we had one big family trip to South Africa when I was eight, which I remember pretty well. And I thought they thought just do it all in this one because my eldest brother was 16. I was eight. My middle brother was 14. And they thought like this is the only time that we can do it with all of them because eldest brother was not going to go on a family trip after that. But they'd gone quite a lot. But when I was before I was born and when I was too young to remember and then they just couldn't afford to do it. Well, I didn't really miss it. I didn't, I think I didn't develop the desire to travel because it would have been impractical to do so and then be frustrated. And my mum was saying to me just when I got back a couple of weeks ago, she was like, I really wish that I had a chance to see the world. She was pretty young when she married my dad, I think 22, 23. And um, he could sculpt because she made a lot of sacrifices for him to do that. I'm not emotional and my voice just doesn't work. <laughs> and then, and then they like, I'm gonna pretend you're emotional. <laughs> my poor mother. I do feel a she bit like that actually. <laughs> None of us went to Disney. And when they retired, they and downsized their house. They had a lot more disposable income in the last few years, but they're now too physically fucked to travel much. Mm, and that's that the that's the sad thing. You ended up in Oxford, which is a lovely place and a place very of travel. Pretty. And you do sort of have this very, what is it about Oxford University that churns out these very confident people that know uh -huh. a lot of big words? Oh, well, I'd like to say that you can find some surprisingly stupid people there. <laughs> um, but but also, they still know big words. Yeah, some. I mean, I don't think big words are too important. <laughs> you can't necessarily express yourself any better. But um, I did have a really wonderful time there. I think partly because I went to this um, college where there were normal people there. It was low on aristocrats. People had gone to state school. Did they shove you all in the one college? Like, well, what? it was a college that like scooped up people that had been rejected by all the other colleges. So I didn't know anyone who'd actually applied to go there, but it was brilliant. really loved it. It was brutalist as well. So you walk around the city and there's this incredible like spindly medieval architecture and then we were in this like big concrete 1960s lump designed by Arnie Jacobson who did the swan chairs so we had outstanding chairs and so I really grew to love 60s brutalism which you wouldn't expect no not um, really no I mean people are getting uh, more fans of it now I yeah, think um, yeah but I think you needed that distance to get away from the you know, the horrible town centres that were totally yeah. ruined by it. You know, you needed yeah. to sort of step back and then see it yeah. a little bit less through the eyes of the period. Yeah, and it was also a real grower. So initially when you see it, you're like, well, oh, concretely. And then <laughs> with all the state school kids, all the aristocrats in there sort of fancy all those, fellas. All those peasants. <laughs> but then it had this sort of really interesting, slow burning beauty and um, serenity to it. So yeah, I was there. I think one reason why people are confident there is a lot of them have been raised in public schools with very low jeopardy in their lives and you know a lot of cushions around them and that makes it a bit easier to seem confident. Americans are more confident than us as well though aren't they? I think they're more outwardly. I think they're more immediately expressive they're better at talking to strangers I think mm. but then it's interesting isn't it I think the older I get as well the more I see through that kind of confidence or examine my own confidence. I did find traveling was actually a real confidence killer and I think it was because like every situation was unfamiliar so I was like there's nothing there's no sort of easy fallback we we're in South America and it, that was our first big place that we'd never been to I don't speak Spanish and I thought I could pick some up because I speak some Italian but I just totally failed and, and even though it wasn't particularly difficult environments I was still like really trying to figure everything out and and then there would be a new thing to figure out constantly so I just felt like a, a massive idiot. Where did you feel most out of your comfort zone when you were away? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I think, I mean, this is a sort of mixed perception because Japan is very different and I tried to learn some beginner's Japanese and I just failed so hard. I found it surprisingly welcoming 
given the lost in translation <laughs> like oh it's so alien i did not find that at all it felt like it was my friend described it as very well organized adventure but i was also very conscious that i couldn't truly interact with the culture because i because of the language barrier and because there's a whole complexity that i i don't know and would take a long time to truly understand so i felt like a welcome outsider but uh, it was a really lovely place to visit that's a really good way of putting it a welcome outsider I yes see that. there's places where sometimes you feel like an outsider and unwelcome but japan is one of those places you feel welcome but you know there's almost a facade there's a barrier you know and that yeah. might be language cultural or whatever i was reflecting upon this a lot because i didn't go traveling with the expectation of like oh you know having a real authentic experience you know ah, you know really going to find myself have a really authentic other people's experience I felt like a spectator all the time and, and feeling like a spectator for such a prolonged period of time felt like my identity was almost vanishing um, because I didn't belong to anywhere, I wasn't tied to anywhere, people didn't necessarily know where I was. So I was like, well, if I disappeared, well, I don't know, how long would it take someone to realise? I mean, I, I just sort of felt like evaporating rather than dangerously disappeared. I didn't really feel in danger everywhere. Very, very interesting. Yeah. You talked about your, your loss of identity and one of the things I found interesting when I was doing my research about you <laughs> relating to travel is that you're very organised. Am I? Well, you're, I you might be so. you, you You did a spreadsheet about a road trip. Oh, I mean, that is part of the pleasure of organising road trips, Lisa. Yeah, spreadsheets are really pleasurable. <laughs> Come on. I mean, if you're organising a road trip. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I can see that. So I didn't travel in my childhood and I couldn't really afford to go anywhere in my 20s. And then at the end of my 20s, my husband started going to these medical conferences. because He was a medical physicist at the time that were in the Bay Area. And he was like, if you're going that far, you might as well be there for more than just demonstrations of medical lasers and stuff. So we started doing these road trips that around California, then up and down the West Coast. And then we just really got a taste for road trips. So we did at least 10 fairly massive American road trips. Therefore, spreadsheets. Because planning the road trip isn't as fun as the road trip, but it is fun. Actually, we were at a friend's place uh, recently and he, was, he had to go to two weddings in Colorado on consecutive weekends, but his girlfriend had to go home to the Bay Area to work in between. But he was like, oh, I should stay out there and see some stuff. What would you recommend? and we did him a spreadsheet and uh, we overprogrammed it because we, we were like here are all of the options of things you could see on this day which would be driving x miles for y amount of time here's where you could stay and we thought it would just give him something to choose that day and he was like i did all of it and now my parents are doing the same route and i was like oh my god <laughs> we really thought we overloaded you but you hero i love it lots yeah. of people would be planning a playlist you do the spreadsheet, spreadsheet. Do, is there a playlist oh no i'm going to leave that because my last question oh. is about music oh, I'm, hello. Not quite, I'm not quite there for it yet um i was reading about your honeymoon that yeah uh, you it was a road trip from there's california a, to the pacific northwest there's a spreadsheet yeah good now we can imagine about that i might have to get these actually because sure. i'm doing that trip soon are you i'll design you a spreadsheet oh, if no you want. i can't wait oh, i get my own personal yes one. Oh, I love it. I'll put it there with my mixtapes. And you said you saw deserts, beaches, rainforests, mountain ranges, calderas, cities, um, an Eccles cake the size of a dinner plate. That's true. Hot that was in tubs, Vancouver. A hot tubs and taxidermy oh. themed motel. Yeah, that was uh, really something. That was in Bozeman, Montana, which is um, just to the north of Yellowstone National Park. So um, it's it's like the, it's a lot of fossils there they've got a very impressive museum of dinosaurs i saw a t-rex's pelvis oh my goodness saw five ages of triceratops baby triceratops skulls are very rare apparently oh. saw some and um the motel <laughs> we were staying there you go into the foyer and there's a lot of taxidermy in this part of the world anyway but in the foyer there were like fur tablecloths 
a lot of stuffed creatures above the breakfast bar there were like all these stags heads and then like in the center of the atrium where all the rooms are arranged around there was like a miniature mountain with like a stuffed sheep on top waterfalls going down and then these hot tubs and i just felt really grossed out by the combination of hot tubs and taxidermy were people in there did you go no. in them was I, that the whole point? Were you invited or was, were they decorative hot tubs or were people actually meant to go and sit in you, them amidst the dead animals? I certainly think you could. I mean, even without the dead animals, I think I wouldn't want to be in a hot tub that was just basically in a in hallway. In the reception. No. Um, <laughs> in your fur bikini. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I don't think, I mean, that would get soggy and fall <laughs> off, wouldn't it? But there was a hot springs in the town. So we went to that, which was pretty cool. It had a very municipal swimming pool atmosphere. So no kind of luxury mud baths or anything. And um, there were these two TVs up. So people were just sitting in the hot pools, watching at the same time, televised poker and uh, extreme home makeover. I love But That's the thing about traveling is that you just encounter these <laughs> bizarre places. We should yeah. set one up. That sounds like it go down really well in like Oxfordshire or something, a taxidermy oh. hot tub motel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be the new thing. There is actually the crazy bear in Oxfordshire that I've been to, and that's got a big bear in the... And that's a really lovely wow. pub place to stay in. It's where? quite quirky, but not that quite, quite that quirky. I wonder where they got the bear from. Yeah, that's true, actually. I don't think it'd be a local specimen. It's yeah, probably someone have, from Oxford. Uh, do they have bears in the Cotswolds? Yeah, they probably do. Mm. Where did you find oh, all this stuff? I don't know. I did know I write some like, real jerk uh, memoirs or something? Uh, I don't know. This is what I do. I dig up bad travel stories. That yeah. you've, uh, No, they're good travel stories. Okay. Um, there was a, a Bavarian-themed town <gasps> wherein lived 5,000 nutcrackers. Oh my god, I love this place. We went back recently. Uh, it's called Leavenworth and it is in Washington State. That's, that's the... Um, far northwest of the US and it's in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains which is quite alpy looking they've got pine trees um, very pretty and uh, in the 60s Leavenworth was failing economically and so some genius was like this looks like the Alps let's make over this whole town to be Bavarian so there's a lot of um, murals on the walls of people in Lederhosen and Edelweiss and kittens sitting on I mean fa painted kittens Not sitting really. on painted windowsills all of the shops even Starbucks even 7-Eleven all of their signs are in kind of gothic -y script and more Edelweiss there's Umpapa music and a Nutcracker museum and you're not allowed to take photos in it, which not is a real shame. Nutcracker from the, the ballet or the, the music? Or you know, the, the, the actual the, cracking nuts? The nutcrackers, and most yes. of them are oh. in the shape of figures. Oh, um, I see, yeah, because yeah. you get the naked lady ones. And the, Do you? Sexy well, nutcrackers. Those are the only sexy... I haven't seen many nutcrackers. Well, I've seen 5,000, ask me anything. Um, <laughs> but the only ones I remember are like sexy naked lady wow. ones. Wow, <laughs> I haven't seen those. Um, I did see a Margaret Thatcher one. in. didn't have them. <laughs> they, they, they went into kind of kitsch sexy ornaments. We had... Um, Another we regret. did have a lot of uh, nutcrackers, but they were just abstract, ah, I guess. Or just yes. nutcrackers, no figurative work. But the lady in there, she was like, oh, have you been to the uh, private Nutcracker Museum in Cornwall or oh. wherever it was? And I was like, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> when it's the private one, it sounds yeah. like that's the, that's the even more yeah. X-rated Nutcrackers. Yeah, uh, not everyone is as enthusiastic about Nutcrackers as you, although wonderful collection. But that's what we should do. That's why there's, when you've got all that space like they do in the States and in Australia as well, you know, they can give over a whole town to like a novelty ladies right. and Nutcracking. Yeah situation and the thing is it worked so another town nearish called Winthrop made itself over as a cowboy town it's not bad but it's not as good as Leavenworth with the Bavarian extravaganza and then another town far side of the country in Georgia called Helen oh, I mean my lovely. voice just sounded emotional but I am I mean I was not that impressed by Bavarian <laughs> Helen because it's much more tacky than Leavenworth so did, you, did people ask you your name like, no one cared oh, but I did take a lot of photos of like the police Helen, cars with like Helen, <laughs> Helen police force and like signs saying 
pick up litter for a tidy Helen, that kind of thing. <laughs> Very exciting. Actually, as you probably know, my nickname's Chessie, C-H-E-S-S-Y, and I've been known by that for many years through various people. But um, the town nearest to Disneyland Paris is called Chessie in exactly oh. the same spelling. But it wasn't the last time I went to the town outside Disneyland Paris. It, I wasn't. I didn't have a smartphone, but I need to go back and you get do. some pictures. Yeah. Especially now if your kids are entering the Disney age. Yeah, they are. At some point I'll go there. You've got to get uh, it done So what else point. is on my list? Oh, you loved Utah. Yes, Utah is really, it's like Mars. It's a lot of red rock everywhere or really stripy rock. It's quite empty. Nevada as well. Nevada is an intriguing state because there's Vegas at the bottom and Reno halfway up, which I haven't spent much time in. I had food poisoning there one night. Projectile vomited over a mirror. That's all I've got to say about Reno. In between them, a lot of ghost towns, which are quite cool. And then just a massive amount of empty space or with like tiny, tiny towns. In Britain, you just don't get much empty space. You don't get that sensation where you're like, okay, the next town is in 300 miles. Yes, yeah. Better stock up. Yeah. And then Utah, it's got these extraordinary national parks where you're like, I can't believe this is real. It's so red, so stripy, so pointy. But I see now where you got your Oxford degree one. The pointy, red, long words, red, red and pointy. Stripy, pointy yeah. rocks. Like an elf's hat, <laughs> red, pointy and stripy. Wonderful. Oh, I read that one of your, your ideal sort of situations in life was having a job that is portable and yeah. allows you to travel and it seems that your job is now doing that you can yes. take it with you on a little recorded device such as this and you're also about to take the illusionist on tour on a us yes tour. it was one of my dreams to have a portable job and i guess i'm making use of that because as long as i have working wi-fi uh, so we had to not go to mainland china on this trip because of you know dicey wi-fi probably uh, that's been the only inconvenience that i have to work but yeah we're about to go on a tour of the illusionist live show my husband plays piano and synths and stuff during it and we wrote to the guy organizing the tour and we we're like can we have it around this time and can we be in austin around this time because my husband wants to catch the end of bat season bat season yeah. i thought we were going to talk about like some music festival or yeah. spreadsheet festival but it's bat season like <laughs> yeah. literally bats bats austin it's not like a band i've never heard of. no i am um, not well up on um on the music scene or even the bat scene but Austin has a bridge with millions of bats that live under it and they come out and do bat swarms during certain months of the year and he really wants to see it. Then I was like, and then can we coordinate the East Coast part with whale migration seasons? And now Josh, that I can understand. Josh, the guy who's organising the tour, is like, yeah, fine. I mean, it's far from the most ridiculous request Josh has ever had in the, his the career. Bat, the bat one was probably a bit more ridiculous. I think even that, he, he was like, so okay. Batty, wasn't it? I, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can admire that. I can tolerate it. How do they receive you, American audiences? So far, very kindly. I think podcast audiences are a very particular thing because usually you listen in quite a solitary way and then to be in a room with other people that like the thing you like, it's so nice. And also for me, because they know what they're getting into. They're not going to see a comedy show where they're like, just make me laugh, I don't know who you are. They're opting in because they know the show. So that's very sweet. And also in America, they give us extra license because of what they call the British accent. I don't know how much I can stretch it by just saying increasingly terrible things until they're like, I'm sorry, no, you lost your accent privilege. <laughs> and also those big words like stripey, red, pointy, yeah. all of those words yeah, that you're using. Yeah, it's a very education experience coming to see me. My last question is about music, not, mm -hmm. not spreadsheets. Disappointing. Yes, I know. Sorry about that. I must put, brush up on my spreadsheet. Treat insight. yourself. I will, I will. I often think that music goes hand in hand with travel mm. and a lot of people listen to music. You might listen to podcasts. I've had one guest that's chosen a podcast mm. and suddenly sorry it wasn't any of yours no that's um, fine that's fine <laughs> i've forgotten what it was oh it was ricky Gervais actually so, well that's yeah. a 
retro cut. Yes, it was. He it was my guest uh, Paul Blanchard. He listened to the whole series and mm -hmm. you know went back. Anyway, I'm on. If you had to choose one song that reminded you of a time, <laughs> a place of travel, it doesn't have to be your best song, yeah, your yeah. favourite song, just that reminds you of a particular travel moment, what would that song be? So when we started doing American road trips, the first song we had to play when embarking on the road trip was um, Holiday Road by Lindsay Buckingham from uh, the National Lampoon's Vacation <laughs> Films. I can so see where you're going with that one. Yeah. I don't even need to ask yeah. why, but elaborate. Well, I think just because uh, my husband particularly was so hyped to go on the Californian road trips before we went and he had done a lot more research about what that would mean I think he'd also watched a lot more films that had that kind of thing in and so I think in the preparation you know during the spreadsheet times he would sing that song a bit jokingly and then it becomes real it becomes uh, the audio cue to road trip but it's not a good song and it's got like dogs barking in it but you, you get in the car you switch that on just and like, you know you're going on an adventure just like the Griswold family thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast that was such fun thank you very much for having me I am going to make you a personalised spreadsheet And if you're near the internet, which I'm sure you are, I'd urge you right now to go put on Holiday Road Vacation by Lindsay Buckingham, as it will bring a huge smile to your face when you think of that at the beginning of every road trip. Thanks again, Helen, and thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.